Welcome to the 30 and 30 podcast, where business owners and practitioners at the top of their game share the keys to their success with your host, Dr. Joe Simon. Hey guys, what's going on? Dr. Joe Simon here from the 30 and 30. Before we dive into this episode, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for all the emails. Thank you for the five-star reviews. Thank you for subscribing to this podcast. I'm so thankful for that, guys. Um, If you haven't done so already, though, please leave me a five-star review. What it does is it helps other practitioners just like you find me and helps us share the message to promote the profession of whatever profession you're in, to be honest with you. You know, I help physical therapists. I help chiropractors. I help uh, acupuncturists, uh, physicians of all types, stem cell doctors to hair transplants to plastic surgeons. Across the board, everyone is able to learn something from this podcast. And I want to say thank you to everyone listening. I really appreciate it. Um, As for the emails, I do respond. It is only me. It is me responding to you. It just takes me a little bit of time. Give me about 24 or 48 hours. I will respond. Um, If you want to reach out to me on LinkedIn, it's probably the fastest response you'll get in short of a text message. So LinkedIn is the best way to reach out to me. Uh, Joe, Simon, Dr. Joe Simon is the best way to find me on LinkedIn. Um, if you haven't checked it out already, check out my new website, drjoesimon.com. We've really, really got into the, the, the niche of what I do and what I do really well. So check out drjoesimon.com. And um, I appreciate all the emails. I appreciate you. Enjoy this episode, guys. And if you have any comments about this episode or if there's someone you think I should interview, shoot me that message. Let me know. I'll talk to you guys soon. Be well. Hey, everyone. This is Dr. Joe Simon. Welcome to the 30 and 30. I have a very special guest on the phone with us today. It is Dave Lakhani. Dave is the author of multiple books. Dave has owned uh, 10 successful businesses for the last 20 years, a serial entrepreneur, and a committed business builder. Uh, A lifelong student, practitioner of NLP, But what I want to go over today with Dave is a book that actually changed the way that I've practiced business, the way that I've done ran meetings, the way that I've uh, interacted with people. Uh, That book is Persuasion. Uh, Dave has written multiple more books than this. This book came out, as we just discussed, back in uh, 2007, 2008. But uh, as I was mentioning to Dave, this is something that uh, changed the way that I practice business and how I work with people. But uh, Dave, before we get started and before I, uh, you know, talk more about you and keep, uh, you know, gushing, I would like to introduce you and, uh, you know, introduce yourself to the audience and say a couple of words. Well, thanks very much for having me. It's exciting to be here. And I'm, I'm thrilled to hear that the book, the book made a difference. It's, uh, it was great fun to write. And I still love the topic of persuasion. I've been studying persuasion for about 35 years now, and I think it's a business skill that everyone should have. Absolutely. And uh, it, it, give a quick rundown. What I mean, you've written something uh, more recent than uh, 2008, obviously. Yeah. Um, what, what else have you uh, written since then? Well, some of my most popular books, there's another persuasion book called um, Subliminal Persuasion, uh, Marketing Secrets They Don't Want You to Know. And then there is The Power of an Hour, which is a book about focus, actually. Uh, Pre-Tim Ferriss and the 4-Hour Workweek, there was this book that was all about focus. And uh, then there was also a a book called How to Sell When Nobody's Buying and How to Sell Even More When They Are. So that book was written during the downturn um, that uh, my publisher came and said, you know, what do you do when, when the economy is changing? So... We wrote that book and talked about how people could sell more in difficult economies. And uh, and then there's a bunch more as well, but those are the ones that people enjoy the most and find uh, you know find most useful in their business. I, I got to ask, Dave, I think a, a lot of your topics start to play off of each other a little bit. And you know, obviously, it's, it's geared toward the entrepreneur. Um, what made you go down that path in the first place? Well, down the path of being an entrepreneur? Yeah, being an entrepreneur, yep. So, you know, my my background is, you know, and why I started studying persuasion is that I was raised in a cult from the time I was six until I was 16 years old. I was raised in a very strict religious cult. They didn't believe in education past sixth or seventh grade. 
They um, believed that women had to be subservient to their husbands or corporal punishment was allowed. They didn't believe in marrying outside of the organization, and they didn't really want people working regular jobs. And so um, they believed in an end-time prophet named William Branham. They believed he was a little resurrection of the prophet Elijah from the Bible. And so my earliest experiences were of people who, you know, had had built construction companies, small construction companies, they were subcontractors, or they were farmers or ranchers, or, you know, people who were doing work from home. And so I saw people building businesses. And my very first, you know, my very first job when I was 11 years old was shoeing horses. I learned how to shoe horses then with a, a person who was a farrier. And all of those experiences sort of led me to say, I think I want to do something on my own at some point. Now, I ultimately went into the army and worked for the government, did a whole bunch of other things. But while I was doing that, I was also learning how to start and run small businesses. I bought my first business while I was, um, you know, while I was still in my 20s and started started really exploring that idea of entrepreneurship. And over a period of time, I realized that you know, I was fundamentally unemployable that I loved entrepreneurship, starting businesses, building businesses way more than I ever did making money for other people in the traditional, let me work nine to five for you sense. And so that uh, became my real passion. Got it. And then you've done, you were a founder of Bold Approach for the last 17 years. Uh, yeah. Before that, zip checks as well. So a lot of things, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there as well. You started off with the uh, being in a cult. I mean, I can, uh, I could imagine, but it's it, it. There was a lot of points that you took away from from that early uh, start, right? Because I want to get into where a lot of my listeners do not understand what NLP really is, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it's it's funny because I've actually taken an NLP course, like a basic course. Uh, it was a yeah. weekend course, and it it was great. I, I thought it was like a lot of uh, teaching points in there that could be used in daily life, but also in sales. Uh, the, sure. the reason behind it, we wanted to use it in sales for our staff to learn how to sell better uh, for a, a package, a payment, anything. Uh, and in healthcare today, patients have huge deductibles. And right. we want to see, is could this provide us with an advantage? And you, mm-hmm. you spoke about NLP in uh, Persuasion as well. You, you discussed it. Um, how How... Intricate is this part of your daily life, and how do you how do you go about this? And do you are you a proponent of it? Do you, you do you tell people, hey, I think you should take this course; it'll really help. Yeah, you know, I think NLP um, NLP has changed a lot. Uh, it's one of those it's one of those practices that you have to you know let the buyer beware. Um, there are many people now who are saying they're uh, you know that they're NLP trainers and and things like that. You know, and you can get your NLP certification, you know, online overnight kind of a thing. And, and you have to watch out for that. But, you know, if you're still going to the key trainers, uh, Richard Bandler, who is one of the co-founders of NLP with John Grinder, who are the people that I learned NLP from, um, are still around teaching. Um, if you get that level of training from those people, NLP is a very powerful tool. But NLP was designed as a therapeutic tool. And one of the best things that came out of it is a means of communicating. So NLP's premise is that, you know, that we're all communicating to ourselves all the time. And if we can talk ourselves into something, we can talk ourselves out of it. And that's that's a very, very, very basic explanation of it. But what NLP does exceptionally well for business people and sales is give them a framework for asking better questions, for quantifying people's answers, and for presenting information in a style or modality that is most useful to them. So, you know, oftentimes you'll hear people talk about visual, kinesthetic, auditory people. And that, that came out of NLP. And they looked at how do people best represent their map of the world and how do you overlay your message across that so that people really understand it. So NLP is a powerful tool. If you want to take the time to learn it properly and to practice it, it does require a fair amount of practice. And uh, and something you use over time. But the thing that I think that all, everyone can use out of it that you can learn very quickly is how to ask better questions, how to quantify what people are saying and how to really listen and then present back to them in a way that they can hear. That is a that is a great piece of information right there. And I hope my audience caught on to that, how to ask better questions, 
but realistically is how to listen. And uh, recently we've had um, training done for our uh, staff where they are uh, the admin staff on answering the phones. And we've done mm-hmm. this when we've uh, gone into other clinics as well. And we've worked with other uh, practitioners and, you know, and I, I think you'll agree with this. It doesn't matter how much marketing you do, but if you pick up the phone and you can't get that patient to schedule or that client to meet in person or whatever it is, um, you know, it could, because you're not listening, it, it, you lose everything, right? You lose your marketing. You should lose that expense that you put towards it. So it's a, it's a very, it's a very clear point, but uh, very difficult to really listen. You know, we, we've seen that um, with a lot of people and it's something that I've struggled to train. And that's why I lean more towards the NLP teachings to help with our, with our staff to see if that would, you know, uh, give them a fair advantage. Absolutely. You know, we, we do a lot of work in the, in the healthcare provider field across the board, all the way from, you know, from medicine to alternative medicine and from, you know, things like psychology and NLP to, you know, physical therapy. And when we, when we look at that, what you're saying is exactly right. And here's one of the challenges that I think that people have though, you know, as we've all become more distracted, you know, by all the technology that's available to us all the time now, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, email, everything that's on our phone 24 seven, our ability to slow our brains down and actually listen to people has been impacted fundamentally, I believe. And so we're all, you know, we're all distracted. We're all thinking much faster. We're all processing information much more quickly because there's so much more of it to process in any given second that we forget that other people need to be heard. And what you're saying is so true, especially when it comes to healthcare practices, people are calling in with issues they're calling in because they, you know, something is bothering them and they need somebody to hear them. And that first experience is so critical to getting those people to work with you long term. If they feel like you're compassionate, caring, and you can hear them and that you want to hear them and that you're willing to learn more about them, those are the people that are going to work with you long term. Those are the people, if you have a cash practice, who aren't going to care about paying cash. Those are the people with those high deductibles who are saying, if I'm going to spend my money, I'm going to spend it here. And because these people care. So I couldn't agree with you uh, more, Joe, that first experience is critical. Dave, I want to, I would also play devil's advocate because uh, I do know, I do have a lot of friends in the marketing and sales arena and some uh, big proponents and will say that NLP is, is manipulative. It's, it's not, it's not a fair advantage to have. Uh, some will even say that they no longer use it in their, in their messaging anymore because they feel that it's not, I I don't want to put it, I don't want to shine a bad light to it, but I am playing devil's advocate on, on this. But, um, what are your thoughts on that? Because I do, you know, we do have a lot of, uh, I'm just going to pick on healthcare providers. We have a lot Mm -hmm. of healthcare providers that believe sales is evil, all right? They believe sales is evil. Asking for the sale is evil. Asking for the referral, they should they shouldn't be able to do that because they already have the title. Um, what are your thoughts on that? And you can you can play with it any which way direction you want to go with it on on that question. Well, you know, in my book, Persuasion: The Art of Getting What You Want, I, I give a definition of persuasion, and my definition of persuasion is you know, persuasion is helping people come to their own most logical conclusion, which happens to be one you share. And I also draw a line between persuasion and manipulation. And, you know, we've all experienced both. Persuasion is, you know, helping people come to their own most logical conclusion, which happens to be one you share. And manipulation is all focused on the other person, the person who's trying to get what they want. They they want to get what they want at any price. They can say anything, will, will say anything, do anything to get somebody to make a decision. And everybody can be manipulated for a short period of time, sometimes even longer periods, but mostly for a short period of time. When, does, when it's discovered, and it always is, it's hurtful, it's painful, and it, and it fractures the relationship. And so when people say NLP is manipulative, it's, you know, I mean, everything can be manipulative, to be sure. Um, you know, it was interesting when I, when I did the research for the book, and I was interviewing uh, a couple of different people, and they both said to me, 
the same thing. I said, well, you know, it, what is, you know, is manipulation appropriate? And, and they all said, well, yeah, manipulation is appropriate. It's totally fine. And that was attorneys and psychologists. And I said, okay, tell me more. And they both took the literal definition of manipulation, which is any attempt to change someone's mind and said, no, everything that we do is manipulation. Anything that we do that people don't come to a logical conclusion on their own is manipulation. So I, I disagree with that particular application in terms of sales. I think there are things that people do in sales regularly that are manipulative, that are highly charged. But the reality of it is it, it, that people have so many opportunities today. There's so much information, so many providers of anything, and, and particularly healthcare. Insurance has changed so much that people have to make better decisions about how they're going to spend their money because their deductibles their deductibles are so high. They oftentimes have to make decisions about whether they're going to use allopathic medicine or something else because of those deductibles. And they need someone who is an adequate facilitator of their experience. And so, but just giving people information alone, here's a, here's a bullet point or, you know, or a litany of ideas and I'm a doctor. So you should make your decision based on that really isn't a good idea because people don't have the proper filter. So you still have to sell to them. You still have to encourage them to take action. You still have to present information in a way that they can comprehend, that they can understand, and that heightens their emotion, that underlines their key points. All of those things still are required. And, and they're required more today than ever because there's so much marketing. There's so much inaccurate information that if you don't give people the proper information and you don't direct them specifically around what to do next, they'll either do nothing or they will get manipulated into making a decision that won't be as useful for them as the one that you can help them make. So selling is wildly appropriate in the medical field, in the healthcare field, and it's just how you do it. It's just not manipulating people. You're not going to lie to them. You're not going to risk your license or something like that by telling people something that's not true. So why don't you just simply help them make the very best decision for them? That's true patient care. That's true patient experience. It's all of those things. Very well said, Dave. And that was uh, that that was a great breakdown for someone that had an adverse reaction to selling. And I think a lot of it is is in schooling. Um, you know, when we are in med school, when we're in PT school, dental school, uh, there is that uh, staunch, you know, um, uh, feeling where you're like, okay, I don't need to sell, and that's something that's not trained. But I think it's slightly changing these days with the younger population, younger generation coming out. Mm -hmm. They are changing. Uh, what they are having a, a problem with is in that marketing is how to how to break down a persuasive story uh, or even yeah. share their story. And, we, and this was uh, I, I've I've uh, dog-eared this part in your book because this is something even back in 2008, which wasn't popular back then. Right. No one no one used story in their marketing. It wasn't mm -hmm. normal. But now if you look at marketing now, everyone is starting to use it. Obviously, you were probably ten years ahead of the <laughs> ten years ahead of the gate here. You know, you were a little bit ahead, but it was it was very explosive for medical, especially because a lot of it is educational marketing. So that's right. why I really I really liked how you broke down the fact of how to break down, how to know your know, know your own story, break you know grab them by the ears, lay the foundation, all that kind of stuff. It was it was really broken down nicely. Um, Knowing that a persuasive story is is the key in in all types of marketing, uh, even in your own life, even in your own businesses, how has it changed the way? Even in, in your consulting, I should say, how has it changed a, a, a practice owner or a client of yours um, go from zero to uh, to a hundred to where they're at right now? Sure. Well, you know, it's, it's so stories are our oldest form of communication, and it's you know if you think about it. When we, you know, when we think about telling these stories, people listen and learn in stories. So, you know, you're, you think about, you know, when you were growing up with your grandparents, your parents, someone like that, they didn't tell you the bullet point version of, I was born in 1965. And then I went to, you know, I went to school and then, and then, and then they don't do that. They tell you these stories that happen. You know, there, if you're my mom, you told the story of, having to walk uphill to school both ways in six feet of snow and hundred degree weather. It was just <laughs> terrible, you know, it yeah. was like that, you know? And so, and, and while we all laugh about that, it's the, the truth of the matter is there's, there's couched inside of that 
you know, ideas that she was trying to pass on. And there was, you know, this, this sense of um, things being different than they were in her time and all of that, which is, you know, which is all really, um, you know, which, which is all really important. So when people learn how to tell stories properly, they're able to, they're able to make a real difference in people's lives because they tell, they, they present information in a way that we're inclined to listen to it and we're inclined to understand it. So since that book was written, I've actually, and, and I based all of this work on story around Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. And so I have taken that and broken it down even further so that it's really easy for people to remember. And it's the mnemonic heroic. And so when you tell those powerful stories, you want to hook them. That's the H. You want to hook people in. You want to tell them something that stops them in their traps and makes them listen. You want to build on the emotion that they're experiencing at the time. You want to inspire emotion in them, uh, inspire emotion. You want to make sure that they're, that they're in a place where they feel like something different is possible. You, then you want them to have that aha moment, the realization where they say, you know what, I, I think there is something different and there is possible. I can get better. And then you want to help them overcome the obstacles that they might be experiencing around what they need to do next. So you, you demonstrate to them how they can overcome them. You, you show them a path and then you inspire them to take action. You inspire them to take the kind of action they need to take next. And then finally, you connect them to the proper resources. You connect them to a community. You connect them to people who have ultimately had their same experience. So that's how you present in a way that is effective and in a way that caused people to listen because it matches their own experience of the world around them. When you look at, you know, when you look at the most persuasive salespeople, they do this naturally, but that's that, that's that mnemonic heroic hook, emotion, realization, overcome, inspire, and connect. That that is great, Dave. You know that's it, I I love this stuff because I can always learn something new. I did not even know that was a mnemonic that could be used, and I'm like, oh, all right, that makes it super easy. But that's that is great. I mean, um, there are so many uh, books out there right now, and I think this is a great angle. And Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey is is legendary. It's been around forever, so it's something that um, for those that haven't heard of it. Uh, it, it's a great starting point, but I think uh, what Dave has done here is broken it down. So uh, stop, stop listening right now. Rewind, listen to it again to go back a little bit. Hear it a couple of times. I think it'll really help out just having that broken down for you. Just so you that simple concept. It's it's really well done. Um, one more thing, Dave. We just wanted to jump on this, and this has been something that's been. Uh, this is more recent, and the funny part was it was in your book, and it's something that. I only saw I only saw again when I opened the book up recently to look through and flip through to get reread and get a couple of ideas and I wanted to touch base on relevancy and yeah. this is it's funny because that's why I explain to people that you may read a book once and you might get one or two things out of it but coming back to it again later after you've progressed and after you've implemented a few of the tactics and some of the strategies coming back again relevancy I can tell you 10 years later I've come back to it and I'm now I have a better grasp of relevancy, right? The, the, the concept of, you know, it, it's, it's about providing information and seeing if that's really relevant to, you know, the, I look at it as to my clients needs and desires or to my employees right. needs and desires or to my, you know, that's how I've been looking at it. But um, let's dive into that a little bit because I think it's a, it's a little more deeper idea than anything that our audience has really thought of right now, but it'll give them a little, um, little fodder for the, you know, it'll, it'll give them something to move forward with. Sure. Well, relevancy is very important because, you know, it's, we, we tend to, you know, we tend to gloss over the most important things. We just assume that people know things that they may or may not know. And so relevancy is really all about providing information that's most useful in the context of the person's experience as they're having it. So while it may be, you know, while something may be really relevant to you, it may not be relevant to the person, or it may be relevant to them, but they don't know it yet. And you need to break it down in a way that they can understand why this concept or this idea is so important to them and why no one else has told them about it before. You know, one of the examples I use when I talk about this is, you know, when you're when your toilet breaks at home and you go down to the Home Depot or Lowe's 
to get the parts and you, you tell the, the person there who's helping you find them, like, Hey, listen, my toilet broke. I, I, you know, I'm not exactly sure, but I think it's this. And so then they sell you a flat for your, for your toilet. And then you get home and you realize, well, I didn't have a, a chain. I need the chain to hook the flap up so that it works when I push the handle. So you run back down to Logan Home Depot and then you get the chain and then you get back and you realize, Oh, in addition to that, I also needed a float. And now you're like, well, and then you go back and you talk to the same person who tells you where the floats are. And this time you say, what else could I possibly need here to fix this problem? And if they would have just told you in the first place, you would have got everything you needed. Your satisfaction would have been much higher because you had all the relevant things that you needed in order to solve this problem. But what happens instead when we don't give people all the relevant information and they have to keep unwinding and finding these things for themselves they have to keep exploring and they don't really know how to do that properly because they're not skilled at healthcare themselves. It begins to frustrate them. It begins to cause dissatisfaction. It begins to set up barriers for them to come back and work with you. And so what you really want to focus on is what is the, this whole idea of what is most relevant to them in their experience and how do I move them from this place uh, from A to B? How do I get them from where they're at today to where they understand the relevancy of this particular modality or this treatment plan or whatever it is that allows them to take this on. The other piece about relevancy too is that they probably have not been well-educated along these lines before because other professionals have glossed over this or they've, they've treated them like they're you know, not smart enough or whatever it is to understand these concepts. But the reality of it is, is that people have the largest piece of AI existing today in their pocket at any given time, and they can check out anything you say. And so if you're not in control of that conversation, if you're not the relevant interpreter of the information, the internet is, and we know the internet's never wrong, but if it were, you know, people would get bad information and may, may make assumptions that what you're telling them is not right because you didn't get around to fully explaining it. So make sure that you're telling people what's relevant, why it's important, and then demonstrating to them that relevancy related to their experience. It's a great point, Dave. And, and, and you know, recently I've worked with a lot of um, stem cell doctors, and uh -huh. I can tell you the majority of them, they believe their service is for everyone. Now, now don't get me wrong. I mean, look, everyone could use physical therapy. Everyone could use sure. a dentist. Everyone could use, you know, stem cells. But you just said such a valid point. How do you how do you make how do you make someone understand that they're only relevant to a certain group of people? How do you how do you how do you explain that to someone? Like I, that's that's been a challenge where it's it's been a barrier for them to overcome where they don't understand because they think, hey, look, everyone can use it, and I I don't argue the point. Everyone can use it, sure. but they don't want to use it is the answer, right? Well, it may not, and it may be contraindicated for them too. Right. It may not be the smartest thing. Right. PRP and ozone and, you know, spinning down some cells and, you know, all that kind of stuff may not be the right answer for every single person in every single case. And so if you, you know, if you have a if you have a hammer and you think everything is a nail, people begin to disbelieve you over time. Right. They just say, well, the only thing they want to do is sell stem cells. That's all they want to do. They want to sell, you know, PRP. And, and then once they've done that, it's over. That's all they want to do. It's not a cure-all for everything. It's that sense of being understood and then saying, this is how this is completely applicable to your situation. So let's break your situation down. Here are other people who had this very same situation that you had, did this protocol, and had these results. That's what makes this, you know, this particular modality more relevant. But when you look at like, like Prolozone, which is a sort of a, a, an alternative kind of treatment that a lot of people use for a lot of things and chiropractors and uh, naturopaths and a lot of people uh, started doing prolozone shots and, and it was you know that as soon as they had this technology available it sort of became the cure-all for everything and people began to disbelieve it now does it work yes it works it works in particular circumstances and for particular conditions really well but if you just try and generalize it and say listen because i can get 150 dollars for this injection I'm going to give it to everyone. People begin to disbelieve you. They begin to disbelieve your message of health. They begin to disbelieve your message of value. They begin to disbelieve you as a professional. And so what you really have to do is say, 
what we all should say when we're looking at people in the healthcare field is what's most important for them? How do how does this person heal? And whatever we can do there that's appropriate, then we want to make that piece understood by them so that they will follow the treatment plan, so that they'll do the things that they need, need to do in order to get better. Because as we all have said a million times, and no one would disagree with, the very best marketing is word of mouth marketing. If people can come to you and they can get better because you understood them, because you, you know, this is, this is one of the reasons that functional medicine is coming into vogue very, very quickly right now is because these doctors are really listening or these practitioners are really listening to people and they're providing the right set of modalities at the right time. They're not focused on one single thing. And so it's this whole sense that, you know, just because you have a tool doesn't mean you should use it. And what you really need to do is start with understanding the patient first and understanding what it is that they you know, that they, that their outcome is what they're trying to accomplish, what their fears are, what they've experienced in the past, put that into a package that they can understand and they will stay with you forever. You know, that's, uh, that was, that's probably the best breakdown we could, we can give some, that was, that's probably the best breakdown we could, we can give somebody. And we, we look at it a little differently and we say, okay, how can we break this down into something very easy to be digested for for the let's look at the new grad coming out right now and what I, I i liked about something that you just did in the book is you you gave them some quick persuaders and to be honest they're not they're not really quick persuaders but they're really good talking points that could really help someone really understand um how to speak with their patient how to speak with a client and and i'll just run through them it's social uh social matching empathy in consequence, likability, um, just to name a few, but these are these are things in today's in today's society that w- we're missing a few things like empathy. You know, it's it's amazing that when we're doing training that we have to train someone on empathy at this point. Right. So it's you know some of it like hey maybe I got it earlier on and it, it maybe we we learned it as we went along. Uh, but it's, it's something that I'm seeing with the new grads coming out where we're doing some training and saying, okay, look, this is, this, this is something you have to figure out you have to be likable <laughs> if you're going to keep clients, right? It's, it's a simple concept. And, you know, like we said earlier, right? It's, it's things that we, that I personally think was, you know, maybe, maybe it was common sense, but it's not so common, right? So, um, I, I love how it's broken down because this is something that I've, physically used in our own training manuals without new staff coming on board where it just helps them understand like okay i i understand you know empathy i ha- i need to be likable right and you know it's it, it's all there right so it's it, it's just a quick you call it the quick persuaders I, i've never thought of it that way I, i've looked at it like man there's a lot more into each one of these topics that i would love to dive in i think for the book you probably broke it down to just chunks for people to uh to absorb quickly Right. You want, you want people to be able to take these things away and say, if I remember to do these things, if I'm likable, if I'm empathetic, you know, empathy is one of the, is one of the most powerful tools in healthcare that you can have. And, you know, I I always find it fascinating. Like I, I I had a, I recently had a, um, uh, had a tooth and needed a a root canal and it it happened over a three day weekend. I couldn't get into a dentist. And so I went to an emergency clinic to see if they can help me out, you know, and, and this, this PA who was well-meaning, the first thing she said to me was, wow, I know exactly how you feel. And I looked at her and I thought to myself, you have no idea how I feel. <laughs> like, you, I mean, you, you should be the smiley chart of, you know, zero to frowny face at 10 and ask me where I'm at on that chart, you don't know how I feel. Like, you don't know what my perception of pain is. You don't know anything about me. And, and so I was, I was immediately irritated by that, and I was also in extreme pain. And I was like, you know, okay, great, fine, whatever. So if you know how I feel, then what are we going to do to fix this? And her answer was, well, I can't really give you anything. Um, but you can, you know, you can try these other things. So that was not empathetic at all. Right. That no. wasn't that, was, you know, it, but that's how many, many people start out that conversation is I know how you feel. Well, you don't know how I feel. You don't know. How, we don't know how anyone feels, but we can say things like, 
you know what? I can't imagine how that feels. Help me understand. Now that's empathetic. That's that's people trying to understand that. And then it's saying, okay, let's let's start there. Let's unwind from there. Because when people are in distress or when people are confused or when people just don't know the right questions to ask, what they want is someone they feel like they can connect with. And empathy is the fastest way of connecting with someone. It's one of the deepest ways of connecting to that emotional space for people where they'll react to you. Yeah, and it's it's so important in today's in today's healthcare society like to have that empathy and we just we just even mentioned the best marketing is word of mouth and it's it's surprising that just having that simple quick connection with someone and getting some feedback from them on how they are doing mm-hmm. really builds in and say hey listen you have to go to this practice because xyz practitioner you know it, it just really got me and you know that well, you think, yeah yeah when you think about those doctors that you, you know that you love the ones that are always broken you can never get into it's like you want to get into dr joe because he's the guy who really understands you and he listens and he cares and he's you know man he's such a great guy every time we go in we end up talking about whatever it is and i forget that i'm there for the you know for this treatment and you know then i get the treatment done and i feel so much better right you want those people to go back you want that to become a story that they tell it's not just saying go to Dr. Joe because he's able to do this thing for you. It's you want them to tell their story intertwined with your story in a way that people say, I've got to go to Dr. Joe like that. How do I get into that guy? That's the thing you want. And that's word of mouth marketing that really, really works. Absolutely. And to to flip it back to the to the employees now. So the, we, we spoke about how the um, practitioners can be uh-huh. more likable, more they pr- provide more empathy. But to flip it back to the employees, one of the quick persuaders is accountability. Yeah. So we have a lot of practitioners. They're all business owners that are listening to this podcast. And, and you know, um, one of the most common complaints that I hear is, you know, I can't hire good people. You know, I just mm-hmm. can't hire. And it's funny because I just did a consulting call yesterday. And the first thing they said to me is, Joe, you know, maybe in in the Northeast, it's easier for you to ha- find good people. You know, I, I'm in Alabama. I cannot find good people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it's one of those things. And, you know, I I obviously empathize with them right away and say, listen, we, we have this problem no matter where in the country because I, right. I've heard it across the board, right? Um, I think accountability is one of those things that a, as a business owner, we, we, we don't want to, we don't want to do because we don't want to take, we don't want to see a less performance from somebody and then we don't, we end up doing the task ourselves. So right. this is what we see with most business owners. Um, and a lot of it is due to, because you know, you don't want to have an uncomfortable conversation with somebody, right? It's that confrontation. Yeah. So it's, right. it's, there's a lot of pain points there for the practice owner, for the business owner that's listening to this podcast right now. And they're saying, hey, guys, listen, you know, I, I get it. I, I know, I know I'm a business owner. I have a ton of clients that like to come in, but I'm burnt out. My issue right now is how do I hire good people to come around me? How is this book going to help me get to that point? Because, you know, and I'm, I'm going to get some of those emails like, hey, great book. Some of the stuff I already knew. But, you know, I want to make sure I touch base on a little of everything so everyone can get mm-hmm. something out of the, this episode. And I think accountability will wrap that up. Um, what do you, you've run a few big companies now. So what, what are your thoughts on accountability? Well, you know, accountability is simply, you know, I'll, I'll give you a really good example, then I'll dig into it just a little bit. So recently I posted a position um, that I wanted to fill. And I, and I said, in order to get this job, you need to include a cover letter and the cover letter needs to um, it, it include these several things. If you don't do that, then you won't get an interview and you definitely will not get the job. Well, guess what? Almost more than, a little more than two thirds of the people didn't include a cover letter. They put like a one line email, like I'm really interested in the job. And <laughs> I'm like, great. You're completely unqualified because you can't follow the simplest of instructions. And I don't give those people an interview anyway because I know that they can't take the time to perform the small level of attention to detail to fully read the expectation of the job, that they're not going to do that in the job. So I begin by holding them accountable before they even know me. But 
the important thing to do, though, is once you've got employees in place, it's to have that really clear communication. It's to understand how to communicate to them in a way that you know that they're getting the message that you're sending. It's setting up very clear expectations around what it is that you expect them to do in what period of time, how they'll be measured, and how you want it done. So if you want accountability, it makes a lot of sense to be able to say, here are the processes that we expect to happen. Here's how we expect them to happen. Here's how you're being measured. And here is, you know, here is some feedback around the way you're doing it today so that you can get better tomorrow. And when you do that, employees love it because they feel like they're, they feel like their employer is communicating with them. They don't feel like they're, you know, they're getting uh, mixed messages or mixed signals around what it is that they're supposed to be doing. They're getting important feedback along the way. You know, one of the most important things you can do is a regular stand-up meeting, either on a daily or weekly basis with your team, so that you can remind them of the expectations, so that you can point out what people are doing really, really well and where there's opportunity for improvement. That way, when it comes around to time for performance evaluations, nobody's surprised. That way, you don't build up resentment and frustration and all the things because you keep seeing Sally not doing this thing or answering the phone right. You keep hearing it, but you give no feedback. You give them nothing else they can do. Then you hold them accountable by firing them. And then we say, well, we can't get really good people. But did you have a process for hiring in the first place? that allowed you to identify the very best people. Now, my guess is, Joe, that if I sat down and talked to you and I talked to a performer who was having that issue, you have a whole different process. You have a series of processes, probably well-documented, about how to identify and hire these really good people. Once you have that, it's replicatable. People can be successful. You know exactly what questions to ask, how to connect with people, and who's going to fit inside your organization. Once you start hiring those people, you can't not hire them in the future. You can make mistakes here and there, but ultimately you're going to have a profile of the person that you want, which is also true of customers and everything else. There's a certain profile of customer or patient that you want to come into your practice because they're going to serve you best. Same with the employees. There's a profile of those employees that you can communicate with, that you will communicate with, that will communicate ultimately with your patients or your customers, and the result of that is success. But here's the thing. If you're not a good communicator, if you're not taking the time to hold yourself accountable to your employees and being accountable to your employees, if you're not setting up that baseline expectation for them so they know how to perform on a daily basis, you're always going to run into these issues because good employees are not magic. Good employees are made. Oh, great line. You know, I'm going to use that as a tagline on this episode. That is awesome. <laughs> I love that. Uh, that is great. You know, you said something so important. I want to run back to it as well. You know, and uh, it, I'm going to, again, play devil's advocate on this. Some uh, authors and some educators out there do are not proponents of the weekly stand-up meeting. They yeah. say too many meetings, right? There's too many meetings, not enough action. What, do you, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think if you let your weekly stand-up or your daily stand-up turn into two-hour meetings then and there's no structure or format for them, yeah, they're probably pretty useless. But if, they, <laughs> if they're designed to be efficient and effective because you, have, um, because you have very specific outcomes and you have a process and a format for how the meeting runs, they're wildly effective. So, you know, a simple stand-up meeting can be, you know, what was a win? What's something you need to work on today? What do you need help with today? And is there anything that we all need to be aware of? And you go around, everybody gets 60 seconds to answer those four questions. That's a lot of information when you times it by however many people you have in the office. You know, three people, I need help on this, this, and this. Great. You can probably answer those questions for them or you can send them in the right path. You know what your marching orders are for the rest of the day. Whenever you start your day with wins, whenever you, you know, have that idea that, look, we, we were successful about these things. It always makes everything else better throughout the day because you start out in that very positive place. And then if you have a place where, you know, people can say, um, you know, this is these are the things that I'm working on. If there's a time to reorganize or change priority, that's the time to do it. Then they don't feel like, you know, you, you know, you know, you heard the idea of seagull management. You know, somebody flies in, drops a little present on your desk and then leaves. Right. <laughs> that's the that's that whole idea of saying, oh, 
these people are working on this. They have these priorities, but those priorities need to shift a little bit because something else more important came up. If you let people know early on in the day, they can make the proper adjustments. But if you just swing by and drop it on them and say, you've got to have this done in the next hour, that causes intense frustration. It causes all kinds of problems and it throws off the rest of their day. They can't be as effective. So I, you know, I disagree with those people that say that, you know, that you should get away from the stand-up meeting or get away from the weekly meeting. You know, if the, again, those meetings don't have to take a long time. I'm a much bigger fan of the, of the daily stand-up for five or 10 minutes than I am uh, necessarily having like a, a, you know, a two hour meeting, all hands meeting per week. However, I think that the leaders in the company should have like a 90 minute uh, a meeting per week. So whether you subscribe to, you know, an idea like um, traction EOS or scaling up or something like that, all the things that these fast growth companies have in common is that series of meetings. Now, can you have too many meetings? Absolutely you can. And, and I'm also a proponent of cutting out all the unnecessary meetings. But what I have found, at least in my experience, is that, when you do those stand-up meetings, when you have those fast meetings every day, is that you don't need to have all of the other meetings to fix all of the problems because they surface and you're able to fix them as they happen. Great point, Dave. That's very true. When you do have the smaller uh, touch-based meetings or the stand-up meetings, you really solve a lot of the issues before the big meeting is necessary. And mm -hmm. uh, you catch on to a lot of the cultural issues that happen within a facility when you have these little, you know, these... Uh, again, five-minute, ten-minute, fifteen-minute meetings. When you have these quick meetings, and um, I, I like the wins. You're you're a hundred percent on point with that. I, I really like that. I think a lot of people have mentioned it. Uh, but the wins are important because you know employees or your team members or your associates, they they want to share with you the wins that they've had for that day for that week. You know, they they want to share like, hey, look, this is obviously it's my job, it's my profession. We, we did something. We changed somebody's life. We, uh, you know, we we made this. We made it more affordable for someone to to come receive treatment with, with us. So it, it's it's a lot of things, but it's 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 one of those things where you know you hear from so many different angles that when you when you're speaking to someone, and it, it's it's funny when you're speaking to different practitioners. I'm not gonna name a, a, any profession specifically, but when you when you speak to them, it's always the ones that are. Um, a little bit higher up that don't want to have the meetings because they feel that, you know what, their time is too valuable to sit in another meeting. Can someone else handle the meeting? And again, it goes back to that simple act of confrontation. They don't want to take the chance of being confronted by an employee about something that needs work or they need help on something else, right? So that's the biggest challenge I see with a lot of practice owners that are trying to figure out what the next step is, how to scale up, how to, how to, how to get to that next level. And a lot of it is exactly what you said. It's just having those small meetings and being able to handle the, the confrontation of what, what do I need to work on? What, what is that, right? I think uh, yeah. a lot of these business owners are, are worried that oh, all my employees ask me for are raises, like every time I meet with them. <laughs> Clearly... We're doing something wrong if that's the if that's what's happening, right? Yeah, if that's and that that's a real thing, right? Where everybody's just like, I need more money, I need more money. Now, assuming that you started out paying a reasonable wage and in line with the job they're doing and that kind of thing, if that always becomes the issue, a lot of times what that is is a real attempt to overcome frustration, right? I'm I'm so frustrated that the only way I can see out of it now is more money. Like, and more money never ends their frustration either. What usually ends their frustration is being heard, understood, and helped to solve whatever problem is causing their frustration. And that happens quite often inside of organizations. I, I agree with you 100%. People are worried that they're going to, you know, they're going to hear something that that's going to require them to do more work or that's going to be frustrating with them because they already solved the problem. But the reality of it is if the problem still exists and people are still concerned about it, then it's a problem that you may or may not need to get involved in, but you can at least provide the resource for the problem to be solved, for the process to be developed so that it doesn't become a recurring issue. The other thing that you miss out on if you're, you know, like if you're the senior leader in the organization and you don't show up at these important meetings is you don't hear about the successes of, you know, of the practitioners. You don't hear about the outcomes of the patient and you don't hear about the people in your organization who are doing things exceptionally and you don't learn how your organization is changing around you because people are putting in better and more efficient, effective processes. So then you go back and say, 
why are we doing it this way? We've always done it this other way. Well, we're doing it this way because it's way more effective. You didn't even know that it changed when it did, but life got more effective, so that's why we're doing it now. And then there's that pushback of, well, I developed this original process. Why are we not doing it my way, right? You get that ego involved. But the reality of it is if you're involved on an ongoing basis, you see evolution as it occurs, and it doesn't feel painful. I mean, uh, a lot of talking points, Dave, and I just want to touch on one really quick, what you said right in the beginning, uh, if they are paying them a fair wage to start with, right? Mm-hmm. So this is this is the challenge, and uh, I, am, I am channeling one of my uh, former clients who was a surgeon, and he was, he was very adamant about what he would start someone on. Like, he wouldn't be flexible. And, you know, I, I, and I subscribe to the method of, you know, pay someone really well and cry only once, right? I, I, that's where I go, mm-hmm. right? So that's where, right. that's where my thinking is. But mm-hmm. he would not do that. And he was a very shrewd negotiator. And I, look, I, he was from a different generation. And I think he just loved negotiating, right? And uh, I, I, in one of the chapters in your book, you discuss persuasive negotiating, but I think mm-hmm. he took it to a different level. How can yeah. how can some of the business owners uh, or the practice owners that are listening leverage this concept of persuasive negotiation with their their staff? Because you you discuss, you've hit on a few of these points already, and it it doesn't have to be about salary. It could be about anything. It could be about time off. It could be about you know job um, you know their their accountability. It could be about different topics. But still, I think it's a skill set that they drastically need. But it's it's just way out of their their you know the ballpark right now for them. Sure. So you know, I mean, negotiation is a is a whole conversation in, in and of itself. But the reality of it is, the best negotiations are getting people to put their you know to put their needs on the table. These are the things that I need, and then to start to break those things down. Why is that important to you? Because really when we're negotiating, it's not, you know, most people don't start at the place where they're both saying no, right? Sometimes they do, but a lot of times it's simply help me understand what it is you're trying to accomplish, which is a different approach than people saying, no, I need a raise. No. Okay. Then I'm going to look for another job, right? You you close the communication and that's the end of it. But when somebody says, I need a raise, you say, great, let's sit down and talk about that. Help me understand you know, help me understand why is now the right time to give you a raise. Help me understand what conditions have changed and, you know, how you've changed and help me understand what justifies this request for a raise. And, and again, like you said in the beginning, if, if you don't people pay people well in the first place, like and, and by well, I mean within the range of what their job, um, you know, requires in your area and all of those things, then you always have a problem. But if you do, assuming that you do and people are asking for a raise, then you want to understand what is that, you know, what is that thing that they're doing and why are they asking for it? If they're just asking because they've worked for you for six months or 12 months or whatever and they think that they should get a raise every six or 12 months, that may not be the proper answer. So then what you have to do is go back and say and understand, okay, you think that you should get a raise every six months. So let me tell you how that could occur. Here are the criteria by which you might get a raise every six months in this organization. You learn these things. You do. You perform at this level. You do all of the things that are necessary in order for that to happen. But if you just tell them no, you immediately shut down the communication. There, and because negotiation is just another word for selling, we're both selling an idea, and we're trying to get somebody else to buy our idea in the format that we decided to present it. And if we can simply take people and say, listen, you know, I want to hear what your, I want to hear what your needs are. I want to understand them. Seek first to understand that old idea, right? And then let's discuss what the outcome is that you're trying to get and how, how we might get it. Maybe a raise is the right answer, but maybe it's not. Maybe what really is the right answer is you need an extra day off. You only need to work a four-hour work week and you need to work four tens so that you can spend that extra day you know, in your child's classroom or whatever it is that you are hoping to get with this extra money, right? There may be many, many ways of solving the same problem, but you don't know if you don't start with that communication first and by asking better questions and by listening carefully. Great point. Really like that. 
I think uh, we've touched on a lot of topics uh, all throughout. I think it, we brought a lot of value to all of our listeners today. Dave, I, you know, is there anything I didn't ask you that you would like to share with the audience that you think, hey, you know what, we didn't touch on this today. And like I said, for everyone listening, Dave has a, about 10 more books out there. So I've, I'm only ch- we were only chatting on one today. But is there anything I missed today, Dave, that you think the, the practice owners out there would really gravitate towards and really learn from? Well, Joe, you, so two things. One, you stole one of the very best questions that I think that um, I, I have ever asked. And, uh, and I think I wrote about it in Persuasion as well. But it's that whole idea of what's the one question um, I didn't ask that I should have that would have helped you make the, pro- you know, make the best decision you could today. I ask that when I'm interviewing people. It's the last interview question I have. What's the one question I should have asked you that I didn't? Wow. And then people will, they, oftentimes they'll say, well, you should have asked me about this. And, and, and oftentimes you uncover great information. Or, you know, if, if I were a, a medical professional or healthcare professional in practice, that would be one of the questions that I ask my patient. What's the one question I didn't ask you that I should have asked you today? Because oftentimes that just prompts them to, you know, ultimately um, say, well, I, I wish you would have asked me about this thing. And then it's a piece of the puzzle that you, you know, that you weren't expecting. And then the last thing I would say is focus. I want you to really, really focus. I want you to build in focused time for you. So instead of running through the day, looking at your phone and being distracted by all the things that you do, use this process that I call fearsome focus. It's 45 minutes of uninterrupted focus followed by 15 minutes of, you know, doing all the things that people normally want you to do. So, so if you have a task that you need to complete, let's just say that it's reviewing charts or that it is, you know, doing some documentation or something like that. Close your door, put a note on the door that says, do not disturb me unless the building's burning down. And then shut off any technology that you're not using. I don't mean like silence your phone and that. I mean literally shut it off. Turn it completely off so that you can't possibly be interrupted. Only have on the program that you're going to be using if you need to use your computer. And then have all the tools necessary that you need in order to perform that one task and focus for 45 minutes. Just do the thing that you need to do. And here's what's interesting. When people actually do this the first time, they realize it doesn't take 45 minutes oftentimes to do the things that they gave 45 minutes to because no one's interrupting them. No one is causing them to be distracted. They're not looking at their phone. They're not doing any of these other things that constantly pull our attention away. Try that idea of fearsome focus one hour a day, just one hour a day, every single day. Pick the most important things it is that you need to work on in your business. Use that 45-15 process. 45 minutes of focus is about our longest period of focus we can have before our brains really start to wander and and go crazy. Uh, And then at the end of 45 minutes, get up, walk around, you know, all those things that people needed to talk to you. They can put them on a sticky note, put them on your door, go to the bathroom, get your coffee and move on with your day. But in that 45 minutes, you'll have accomplished so much in your business because you had that uninterrupted, distinct focus time, that fearsome focus to get the task done that you need. Fearsome focus, Dave. I, I love that terminology. I think I'm gonna put that right above my computer screen at times, just so I can just remember to just concentrate on one thing and not click on eight thousand different things. You know, I think that's uh, it's a great takeaway. Really like it. Um, if someone wants to get in touch with you or they want to find more of your you know your books or your teachings, mm-hmm. where can they find that kind of stuff? Just go to Bold Approach, B-O-L-D-A-P-P-R-O-A-C-H dot com, and you'll find everything about me there. Awesome. Dave, I am excited to have you on today. There was so much stuff where we can keep chatting on. I mean, we just scratched the surface. It, you know, I, I know we're limited on time as well. It would be respectful of your time, but fearsome focus is something that, you know, maybe we'll come back and do a, a follow-up on that because I think that that itself and the negotiation topic – we could probably mm-hmm. chat in an hour straight on just that alone. <laughs> absolutely. Right? Absolutely. I'd love to be back. And thank you so much for having me. This was a wonderful opportunity. And, and you're a great interviewer. And the information that you're getting out 
to to healthcare practitioners, I think is invaluable. So thank you for doing that. Oh, flattery will get you everywhere, Dave. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, no, it's 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 amazing. Like you know, I I've made it a point that I would like to reach out in 2019. I, I put it down as I want to reach out to as many uh, of the people that have changed my life starting back in 2008 to, to now. I, and I went through that and all the books that I've read and everything. And I just started reaching out and saying, and you were one of the first to say, Hey, I'll be more than happy to be on the show and, uh, and be interviewed. So I was like, wow, that is, that is awesome. So a big thank you to you as well. Uh, for everyone listening, uh, we will make sure every all the, the topics that we discussed, if there's any uh, links to uh, what Dave has mentioned, I'll make sure I put that in the show notes as well. So make sure to check out his, his website, boldapproach.com. And Dave, if you want to contact Dave, check him out on LinkedIn. All of his information is there as well. And um, we'll see you soon. Thank you, Dave. You bet. All right, Dave, that was perfect, buddy. Thank you. Hey, guys, what an amazing episode. I am so happy that you listened all the way to the end. There's so many pieces of information that you can take away and implement now, and that's what you got to do. You got to take something that you've heard right now, jot it down, put it into effect, right? That's called absolute implementation. So let's make sure that happens. If you haven't done so already, make sure you click on my website, drjoesimon.com. Sign up, follow me on LinkedIn, and you'll get more of this amazing information. All right, guys, I'll talk to you soon. Take care.